hello, this is Peter Morhill, and today I'm talking with Jonah Bailey and Micah Alice uh, about planning. Uh, both Jonah and Micah work at Atomic Object, a software design and development consultancy with offices in Grand Rapids and Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, Jonah, maybe you could kick things off and just tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Atomic. Sure. Um, so I have a background in historical inquiry. Um, I moved away from that pretty quickly after I got my degree because I got tired of endless arguing <laughs> about um, just very small pedantic points, and I'd always been involved in design and found that actually historical inquiry almost perfectly prepared me for user research and contextual inquiry and therefore gave me a real head start on what software design is all about. Um, I came to Atomic last year as a designer, and now I'm the managing partner, one of the managing partners here in Ann Arbor. So before I was designing software, and now I'm helping to design and run an office here in Ann Arbor. How about you, Micah? Uh, my background's in computer science. Uh, I went to uh, Grand Valley uh, State University, which is where I was recruited to start at Atomic Object in 2002. So I've been there for about 14 years, um, started as a developer, uh, and recently transitioned into a role where I'm supporting all the teams uh, in both offices. So primarily by meeting regularly and coaching people who are in a lead position on the team, coaching new new teams who are just starting on like a template process to get going with, and also trying to facilitate regular workshops just to check in and make sure like what support teams might need, or broadly speaking, like our company could need across all the teams. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say the other thing that, that Micah does that I really appreciate is when you're in a tough spot in your project, and you're not really sure how you got there, and you're not really sure how to get out, you call Micah. Okay. And and Micah's not going to be able to fix it for you, but he's going to be able to help you see a way out and understand how you got there. Okay. So I've been doing a little bit of reading about Atomic's process for mm -hmm. software design development. I, I, I love it. And so I, I, I'd, uh, I'd love it if you could uh, just kind of talk us through, uh, you know, how atomic object goes about starting and you know the the, the, the sort of the phases or the mm -hmm. way that you move through a project well uh do you want to start john or do you want me to start no here? go for it so once we're past like the the sales aspect um and we're looking more like how are we going to like really shape um let's say like a high level plan that we can communicate to a client to to meet their needs i think one of the first things that we do on a regular basis to try to like categorize of what what type of project is this? You know, mm -hmm. is it a rewrite of an existing a replacement of an existing system? Are we augmenting an existing system and adding on to it? Mm -hmm. Are we starting from scratch? Are we um, are we trying to produce value internally for a client or externally to their customers? Um, are we trying to just learn something as quickly as possible by building like a, a very small MVP or prototype? And that really informs like 
how he would engage in an initial phase, um, which a lot of, I, I think, more traditional like agile teams would refer to as sprint zero, mm -hmm. but we would refer to it as a research design and planning phase, which could be anywhere from one week to um, multiple months, yeah, depending on how how much research um, is required, um, say for a new product, mm -hmm. in terms of like understanding the customers. Sometimes, and sometimes. Uh, research design and planning which we call rdp um is a product in and of itself oh yeah for for a handful of our clients they're looking to get a way to communicate their vision yep. um, as a whole as a, a holistic product um, and that could be for getting additional funding or selling internally to their their organization what they work yep. and getting people excited and just on board with understanding like where they want to go Sometimes that time is spent less on research and more on gaining an understanding of an existing system. So in the case of a full rewrite, um, I, it would be called research, but we're not going out interviewing people and trying to like broadly gather like a, a matrix of competitors and find like a like a sweet spot for, for like a product to lay. But instead, we really want to understand the breadth and depth of the effort required to replace something and have a decent understanding of what what's feasible for the organization to receive like a phased rollout versus having to replace everything at once. So you so you kind of categorize the type of project before you move into this, this sort of RDP phase, mm -hmm. uh, and then what? Um, so my view on this, uh, usually at this point, I would start from like an end state and work backwards. And the end state is like we have a, a team who's implementing that vision, that product, like a, an implementation team. Um, and that's how I define my goals for like what the rest of that process looks like. Yeah. So let's say the end goal primarily is focused on having like a well-groomed and executable backlog. Um, we, you know, focus on like agile software development. Um, so like the backlog is like the core piece of that, that living plan essentially that we have going forward and working backwards from there. Um, Oftentimes we'd want to be building an artifact like a story map or a product backbone that's sometimes referred to. Um, and that's something that we'd collaboratively build with a client and still be like very involved in like the end of the, the RDP process um, when we're creating that. Um, another, I should say like branch from that is like if a client's looking to get funding or buy-in internally and not just start implementation right away, we'd be focused more on creating like an artifact that encapsulates that high-level idea of the backlog versus just implementing the backlog. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and in many cases, we'd produce both if mm -hmm. we're going to start implementation. So um, the process of getting to that point involves like creating a lot of uh, user-centered design artifacts, mm -hmm. which Jonah might be able to speak to a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for, for our designers, the end goal of the RDP is to have a populated backlog of really well-defined user stories that are also estimated mm -hmm. with points. Yep. And points are a, a representation of, of how complex we think that user story will be to implement and therefore how much effort it will take. And um, we also want to see detailed visual design uh, associated with every user story so that when the development team comes in, they can just grab that story and get to work. Um, that's the ideal, yeah. the ideal place. You also, we also like to have a lot of artifacts available that could help inform the why, 
like any of these decisions were made. Yeah. Because like there are going to be tons of decisions that are made by the implementation team that aren't, they're not going to have time to go and check with the client. And they come down to the micro level of like, should I use a drop down for this? Or yeah. should I like, should I display all the options yeah. at once? And understanding the why like just helps keep people aligned throughout the course of the right. process. Yeah. And a lot of artifacts that are created during the RDP session, I wouldn't say they'd never change, but they are more static in that we don't necessarily like reiterate on them every week or every yeah. two weeks. Yeah. And those would be um, personas, yeah. context scenarios, sometimes yeah. like represent an individual form of like a, a, a three up comic. Yep. script like thing. Yep. Or it could be a story, just something that you read through. Yep. Mm-hmm. High level roadmap. Um yep. a, some way of expressing the user's journey. Yep. Like throughout the problem they're trying to solve and like where it intersects with the product and where they yeah. go back to their the other tools and people they're interacting with. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that makes uh our RDP phase work the best is when design and development are working together throughout that time. So usually when I'm doing a, an RDP phase, I really like to be paired with somebody like Micah. And maybe we're not working together all day, every day, but we're working together periodically. So I'm going off and like I've got some research findings and I'm synthesizing them down to a set of wireframes, for example. And so then I'll come back to Micah and say, let me let me walk these through. Let me walk through these with you and just sort of explain and present them to him as I would to the client. and he's going to have a bunch of questions for me. Well, and, and, and some of them may be from his own point of view, from the user interviews that he's been in from the kickoff meeting or whatever, but he's going to bring a completely different viewpoint than I might have and help me to think through things a lot more holistically. So I'm, I'm thinking more about, um, users, wants and needs, um, what, what looks good, what feels right. And he's going to bring he's going to bring the side of what is this going to take to implement technically, and is this is this going to work not just in this screen but like fifteen screens down the road, and when we're working together like that, like what comes out the other side is a much better product for our for our client in terms of um, it's it's just a better design, but also that means that like if Micah were the lead developer on the project, now he has a ton of information and sort of viewpoints from me, and it's it's sort of shared information. Yeah, but I have context for all those decisions. Yeah, it, exactly. Yep. Yep. And then for folks who don't aren't familiar with the agile process, could you talk through a little bit about you know how the sprints work and yeah. uh, maybe the role of planning once that starts? So uh, to give you a little bit of background. When I started in 2002, we were trying to pretty directly implement extreme programming um, as our model. It was like very popular back then, even though it has a, a kind of awkward name. Yeah. Uh, and we were doing like weekly iterations, estimating with points, um, implementing automated tests. Extreme programming is like very focused on development practices and has a little bit of process with it. Over time, we've grown to. Um, be less dogmatic, more pragmatic about some of those uh, practices, except for testing and automation, which are both like, not negotiable um, for any team. But like pairing, you know, when it makes sense versus when it doesn't. Sometimes you have an odd number of people on a team, um, as an example. And we started to pick and choose from other um, 
approaches like Scrum. And the terms we use are kind of interchange, but we moved more towards being a little bit more formal about scheduling meetings and having purpose for the time that we spend when we're not just working mm-hmm. versus in an XP sense, it was way more loose. Like you meet once a week and you just kind of talk about the project and the plan and that was it. Um, so right now, um, I'd say what we do is more it's identifiable as Scrum, but I wouldn't call it Scrum. I'd call it our, our own process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'll be using some Scrum terms, and that's why I wanted to give you that background. Um, we typically focus on uh, two-week sprints and uh, try to measure velocity at, at that interval, but we don't necessarily adhere to the idea of like requiring a commitment we just use that two-week boundary as a good measure for, like, you shouldn't talk about things at the implementation level of detail planning if it's beyond that two-week boundary because yeah. it might, the context for the implementation might change by then. Um, we don't uh, necessarily do a release every two weeks. We release as often as possible. So that might be multiple times a sprint. Yeah. Um, and I think the two-week boundary is a good rule of thumb of, like, you should probably be able to release at least this often yeah. going forward. But we don't. We don't tie a, a hard increment um, uh, to our release. Yeah. Um, we always estimate with points in our backlog. And for, I guess, higher level maintenance of the what I call the, the living plan of, of the backlog and the signals it can throw out, um, we usually have a delivery lead who's focused on like maintaining um, a, a healthy backlog. And they use three goals. Um, which are prioritized to like understand like whether their backlog needs grooming and like what kind of grooming it needs. And it would start with the goal of having four to six weeks worth of sprintable work. Um, sprintable being defined as the implementation team like chooses whether it's sprintable or not. And what it means to them is, can I start working on this without asking a question from someone outside of our team? And I'm, I'm pretty confident that we can get it done as well. Um, four to six weeks is more than... I've seen, um, at least with a lot of our clients, um, available as Sprintable. Um, but what I've, what we've learned that it does is provide a good buffer for um, if someone who's like a product owner or in our case a delivery lead has to step away for a week or two, like you can actually like manage that, and you're not going to wind up with the team getting blocked very often. Uh, the second goal that we try to keep on all of our projects. And we have a very diverse set of projects, so this one gets a little bit harder to like define very rigidly, sure. is um, have a, a decent measurable milestone in your backlog, which implies about three points. One, like you have a milestone that is physically, well, as physically represented as it can be in your backlog. Like you can see what is right above it and right, right below it. Um, so maybe just uh, a dummy story or an actual release if your backlog tool supports that. And measurable in that all of the stories in between now and that milestone are point have points on them. Um, even if the team has no idea how they're going to implement it, like put a big number on it. Um, if it's risky, you don't know how to implement it. If you don't know what direction it's going to go, still put a big number on it. So no, no zeros. And also think about if there's anything missing um, and make sure that like you're not, make sure that make sure you feel confident about that milestone based on what you know today and that there's nothing that you know that's going to have to be done that's not represented. Another like um, small point that this kind of implies for our teams is that we don't 
only put points on features. We want to assign points to anything that's going to take the team time to do mm -hmm. that isn't representative of like churn work that just comes out of like working in the process. If you know that the team has to like implement this chore or this backend system or like just do this translation work for data, then you should plan on it taking time because it's going to take time. And you should understand how that changes your, your plan. Uh, the, the, the third mini point of, or the third actual point of the measurable work is we try to like keep that milestone about two to three months out. Um, usually that's about the length of our shortest projects. So if you have a project that long, you should probably have a milestone at the end of the project because we're managing client's expectations to a budget at that point. If we have a project that's, you know, just a recurring um, line of work with a customer, then once we get to the point where we hit one of those milestones, we want to set another one about that far out. And that's about the, the point at which I would draw the line of, like, make sure everything is estimated to it. And beyond there, like, there's a little bit more um, flexibility with respect to, like, moving things around and, like, not having to focus too much on the details out there. And the, the third goal that I have our product owners and delivery leads focus on is making sure the team understands the goal of hitting that milestone through the lens of the backlog. And what that provides um, is the ability for any member of the team to identify opportunities, say, for optimizing their work today to be able to more effectively like meet the goals of like a few weeks out. And th this is a little bit um, not in line with, I think, what more dogmatic agile approaches would take into consideration. I find it more of a balance between like plan long term and be just in time. Uh, it's okay if things move around in that backlog in that three month period, but whoever's moving it around should also feel the pressure of like having to keep the team up to date with what those what that's going to be. I don't think it's ever a good idea if you have like a very skilled team to only be feeding them tasks every two weeks and they don't know what's coming down the pipe after that. Like it's not, it's going to frustrate them for one, maybe with our junior teams, like they just kind of like it, like it's yeah. kind of fun. But I know once, uh, once you get a taste of the other side and you are able to like implement optimizations or implement like more, a feature maybe a little bit more complexly, but it makes like a lot of savings happen down the road. Um, it's way more satisfying and you see the value delivered to whoever like your customer is. Yeah, it's interesting. I, there's there's a lot of tension in our industry, you know, mm -hmm. between design and development, sort of user experience design, and sort of the methods there, and the kind of the more purist uh, kind of agile. Uh, and and mm -hmm. I have to say, it was refreshing to read some of the blog posts on on Atomic's website. This one in particular, I wanted to actually quote um, one of your colleagues, Brittany Hunter, uh, was writing about the research, design, and planning phase and and she argued that sprint zero is not enough. Uh, and uh, this is a quote, uh, emergent design encourages software teams to approach projects on a feature by feature basis without pausing to survey the entire architecture. This leads to software with poorly designed information architecture, redundant patterns and inelegant workflows. Over time, an agile design will become like an old farmhouse that's had too many wings added. <laughs> the traffic flow will be all wrong. The closets will be in weird places, yeah. and it will just kind of look funky. Yeah, could yeah. be more. And we've experienced that. Like, I think yeah. it happens. Um, like a lot of people refer to technical debt, yeah. um, and it could cover like a 
a wide array of like mistakes and like bad stuff going on in a project. Right, right. But one thing that it definitely does refer to is the, the the list of things in your code that didn't anticipate the next thing that you were going to do mm-hmm. that just wind up building up to too long of a list for you to address. And I think the same thing can happen with just just in time design. Yep. And I, that's what I've actually working with Brittany a lot has helped to and other designers in Atomic for so long has really helped to push this idea of the balance of like, no, let's let's identify this milestone and not only like take the appropriate time up front to invest in um, design and understanding like a problem we're trying to solve, but also make sure that we can like keep some semblance of like a decent understanding of our long-term or medium-term target yeah. so that we yep. can actually like take that into consideration when creating like a holistic design yeah. implementation. So I would imagine that uh, it takes some work up front kind of helping your clients to understand the process and uh, to dispel some myths that come from their understanding of Agile and so forth. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'll just, I'll say about the 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 thing that really echoes for me um, what Brittany wrote there and, and what you're asking about, the difference between Sprint Zero and our RDP, is that um, there are a lot of really important design decisions that need to be made at the beginning of the project. And when you time box that, that exploratory time to maybe two weeks, yeah, to a sprint zero, what you're forcing the designer or the team as a whole to do is make probably the most important decisions in the project and basically like wed themselves to them at their, at their biggest point of ignorance. Like it, it may have been days since they even started the project and all of a sudden they're making these really important decisions about informa- information architecture, about technology, um, at, at, a, at a point when they are, for all intents and purposes, ignorant. And so by, by basically spreading that out and giving it a little bit more time to breathe, um, we gain a ton more understanding before we make those really crucial decisions. Because the reason that like it ends up looking like a farmhouse that's been built on and it's kind of funky is that you made the wrong decisions. Right. And there's no way that you could have made the right decisions because you didn't have enough information, because you didn't have enough time to really let the problem marinate and digest and do enough research and be able to synthesize findings. I mean, that, that's the, the thing I never understood about Agile reading, about sure. you know, kind of being an information architect and someone who kind of adds value in the, those early stages. Mm-hmm. Um, I never understood the, 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 the way that, that the holistic kind of picture could be dealt with. And what I'm getting a sense of just, just recently is that there's sort of a growing number of folks who are, have kind of hit that maturity level that are realizing we need to strike the balance, yeah. right? But it, it was probably necessary to be somewhat dogmatic for a period of time because Agile represents a pretty big cultural big shift. shift. Yeah. Uh, and you're just trying to, you know, I mean, there, there's, there'll be, it's so easy for people to fall back on the waterfall model mm-hmm. that you kind of had to be a purist for a period of time just to, yeah. just to get that culture shift to happen. Yeah. So pendulum always swings and it does feel like we're getting back to like a, a middle point that's a lot more healthy. Yeah. I mean, the other piece of this that I've been thinking about recently is, uh, you know, if we sort of take a phrase like strategic design, right, and the idea that um, part of our role isn't just to execute a plan, 
-hmm. but it's to figure out what should we be building in the first place, mm -hmm. right? And to talk with the users or customers. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yep. and that, that, you know, your RDP phase is really, uh, yes, seems to, to sort of speak to that. Yep. Yep. It, it can, it, it can at times be more focused on just the, the product is already defined and a lot of that strategic work has already been done by the client. So it may be that we are digesting that information and possibly validating it. But there are other times when we're definitely helping the client define the product. Right. And I, I saw like a few days ago, you, you tweeted out that basically that double diamond yeah. structure, that's definitely what, what it looks like. And I, a lot of times I, I think that the, the sprint zero mindset means that that first try, that first diamond, if it exists at all, is minuscule. And then you have this really large second diamond of um, basically like nailing down the design after the project's already started. And that, that can be really hard. So what we've done is, is made them both about the same. So you may get to the end of the research design and planning phase and all of the design is not done yet. And it may be oh, yeah. ongoing in the in the second part. And that's good because even at, even though we've given a good healthy amount of time to that RDP phase, as the team starts working and as the product gets in front of the client and gets in front of users, there's new findings. And we need to be able to incorporate that. I mean, that's the strength of Agile, right? You're, and you're constantly incorporating new findings and new learnings into what you're designing. And so we need to have that availability too. Yeah, another lesson that we've learned to be able to like utilize a designer on uh, an agile team without making them feel frustrated um, mm -hmm. and not knowing what they should be like designing because things are moving around is by following those three goals when managing a backlog versus just making sure the team is always busy means that they the designer can kind of generate um, every two weeks like their meta backlog from analyzing with a product owner or delivery lead. The de developer's backlog. Um, we don't we don't mix items um, in that list. Like we usually use like a separate um, tool like Trello or something like whatever like they would use as their personal list to manage their work. But it would essentially be like a reference to like points in the backlog in effectively the same priority of like stories that are coming up to understand like where they should be focusing their time over the next hopefully just like the the development team like two or three months. Yeah. Yep, and we did. To put it in like concrete terms, the 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 backlog management tool that that we use quite a bit is Pizzle Tracker. Yep. Um, and we we can use other things. I mean, for a really small, like fast and dirty project, you could use Trello. It'd be fine. I mean, you basically need a Kanban chart of some of some sort. I um. I had heard of burn down charts, but I came mm -hmm. across an article you'd written, Micah, uh, on burn up charts. Mm. Explain those. <laughs> uh, well, they look more positive. <laughs> and they also do a better job uh, representing another important data point, which is total scope and as that changes. So burn, we, I usually try to call them burn charts. Uh, burn charts are good tools that someone who is responsible for managing the backlog should be maintaining so that they have a good built-in reflection point of understanding, like, do I need to consider an adjustment and talk to key stakeholders about what that might be and what their options are? I think it's a poor um, tool to, on a regular basis at least, communicate status updates to people who aren't 
empowered to like manage the backlog directly. I do think they're a good tool for um, having a center point for or a visualization for a conversation around like options when yeah. when a change or adjustment needs to be made, though. And if I'm remembering the the blog post to which you're referring correctly, um, I, I think I tried to illustrate two categories of those decisions. One is managing scope, and the other is managing budget. And oftentimes what what we would do when coming to a customer who's not directly managing their backlog with options is point out the obvious option, if we know it's like potentially available, of extending um, the budget, and then bring one or two options that we've very critically thought about for managing scope. So not just say to them, well, you'd have to cut 50 points, go pick them. We try to like come up with different versions of like their product that still meet the overall goals of their release, as far as like we can tell from our understanding, and and present those, and bringing the visualization helps uh, keep everyone aligned on how much of the project we're really talking about here, and also it, it reflects the current progress that's been made. Um, so. That's kind of where I see the value of, of burn charts. We still like try to deliver them on a regular basis to clients, but I think highlighting them is like this is the thing that I want you to focus on every week and and really consider is it doesn't really get the point across of like what how you'd want a stakeholder or a client to like understand what's going on with the TF. They they could I mean I think the <clears throat> the danger of not of of giving those to people um, clients who aren't empowered or don't have the additional context is that you can induce panic and people can get really freaked out for absolutely no reason when there when there are totally reasonable solutions for for the current situation so and um sort of learning about your process my my sort of sense is you've got this uh rdp phase research design and planning where you're doing big picture planning for the, the, the project or product. Um, then uh, in the context of, uh, of sprints uh, and even sort of on a day-to-day -day basis, there's a certain amount of evaluation. Where are we? And then plan, you know, planning the, the, that piece. Um, and then at the end, there's a, you, you sort of make a mention that, you know, um, with software, the product's never done. There's mm -hmm. always a potential for future releases, and there's yep. this, and so there's this possibility of of imagining where might this product or service go over the long term, and and that kind of gets into a little bit of visioning, right? Mm -hmm. um, are there tools or practices you use for uh, kind of thinking creatively about where things might go in the future? Um, I think we we use pretty heavy use of um, Holman's Innovation Games. Um, I think his first name is Luke. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Luke Holman. Um, we we like to play um, Remember the Future, and that that helps to capture not only um, su success metrics for the for the current project, so we can know like when we're done and when you know we can raise the victory flag, um, but also like what they're thinking about for the future. And that that one is is really really helpful. Okay. The the other one is that at, during during the RDP phase, um, we do try and get out and engage in as many user interviews as we can. Conduct 
contextual inquiry. And at those points, um, for a lot of our teams, the, the possibilities of future features or where the product could go in the future just become abundantly apparent. Um, and, and we'll note those things down and we'll make that part of the deliverables from the RDP phase. Um, but we try and, we try and manage the scope to what we currently have available in terms of budget. Many of our projects go into a monitoring and measuring um, kind of status. Uh-huh. Uh, when if we like ramp our team down, where the client's not actively investing in us building the product anymore, they want to see like kind of where it's going to go. And so we we try to like either move down to a skeleton crew of our own folks, or we hand off to a team that they were trying to build in parallel. And then if they find success or learn a lot from like that that phase where they're intentionally like taking a break from like adding more to the product, then when we re-engage, we'd want to start out with a similar approach as when we started in the beginning. Yeah. So sometimes that conversation is delayed, um, really just to get the, the creative side of rest and like, let's balance that with reality and what we're seeing on the ground happening with, you know, with the actual users. Yeah. Yeah. Rest is good. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you, you folks uh, have insight into a, a lot of, software projects across many companies. Just, I'm just curious if there are sort of major trends you're seeing, any big shifts going on at the moment. Oh. I mean, there are obvious ones, like there's way more focus on mobile application development, um, specifically like native mobile apps. Um, I've seen a trend um, a little bit back towards uh, some desktop apps, mm-hmm. at least interest in it. Um, even yeah. if they wind up realizing that like a, a less expensive investment in a web application would suffice, um, yep. the, the core interest is interesting coming from that. And it's not always from a replacement of a desktop application. Sometimes yep. it's the, for, I'm, I'm not sure for what reason, but the perspective of our customers that like that would be the ideal like approach. Yep. Um, solving that problem. I think it's the, um, sometimes what, you know, native apps, so desktop mobile apps versus just web applications, um, is sort of like the, that, that's been on the scene for a while. And I think the, the driving force behind that is product companies wanting to have a deeper and deeper integration into people's everyday lives and the web sort of being this, this boxed thing that's sort of stuck in the browser. Um, I think that's where a lot of that is coming from. The the thing that the thing that I see that's most that's most stark is the is the difference in um, honestly like design and development quality between consulting companies like us and uh, dedicated product companies. Uh-huh. Um, there we we do we do a lot of really high quality work. We write highly maintainable, um, completely tested code. And I see a lot of product companies uh, across the country that are not doing that. Um, and they're, when you, when you get behind the, the face of their, of their user interface and start looking under the hood, it, it gets pretty scary pretty fast. Um, and part of that is that they have like a lot of time to just be able to polish that sucker and keep and keep 
making it better and better and better. Um, but there's there's a lot of inefficiency in that that I that I think is is a bummer, <laughs> just because it's so much wasted effort. Is that also because they're growing fast and, and it could be. Sort of yeah. moving too quickly? Yeah, and it and I think it starts with the with um, a a faulty understanding of what an MVP should be. So it's the, it's the, it's, I mean, it's, it's all over, it's all over the internet, but the, the idea that, it, that, it, you know, the end product, like the vision is a car. So what the MVP should be is a really well-constructed skateboard. But what a lot of people do is like the vision is a car. So I'm going to build right now is a shitty car. Right. And, and guess what? Like in between now and the vision that you have, like the car is not going to get any less shitty. If you start with a shitty car, you're going to end with a shitty car. So what you need to do is like build a really high quality MVP. That's not where you want to be, but it's the kernel of something that could one day be something really excellent. And, and that, and I just, I see it everywhere. I've uh, noticed a lot of larger, of our larger clients, like fortune 500 companies, um, are escaping the tyranny of IT mm-hmm. um, with respect to product development, like finding a way to separate the two yeah. um, organizationally, like usually. Yeah. And that's made working with those clients much more pleasant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm talking about like being able to just get GitHub installed internally and like have your own build tools, use external services and cloud services right. and deploy applications. Right. It makes... Um, just the the process like so much more effective and efficient and yeah for for good reasons too and seeing organizations like like learning that more and starting to understand it and embrace it yeah is um it's been something that I've only really seen over the past couple of years yeah I mean it feels like it feels like the the IT industry which I don't think we would see ourselves as a part of no no not um but most people most people um outside the software industry would like all the time I get introduced to someone who works in IT right. and like every time it's just uh, a little cringe. Um, but I, I think the, the IT industry is going to undergo a, a pretty fundamental change because within a lot of these large enterprise companies, the job that they have, I mean, they have hundreds of people um, and their job is now done by companies like Heroku and, Amazon Web Services and yeah, all different types of places, and and their job largely can now be automated and be done by a developer rather than like an, an IT technician. Yeah, and that you know that sort of attention to trends and what's going on is 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 uh, you know part of that whole topic of planning, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of you know you've got you're, you're looking at what's going on in our project and at different different levels of granularity, but also keeping an eye towards what's going on in the, the big world out there. Yeah. Um, we're almost out of time. Any last thoughts about planning? Suggestions for people on how to be better at planning? I, I think what I, I think what Mike has said about, you know, having a, having a healthy backlog of four to six weeks is, is just, incredibly important. It's not always feasible or practical in every single situation, but the further you can push in that direction, 
the more, especially as a as a project leader or product owner, the more space you have to breathe and be able to think strategically. Like when you're just, it, it's kind of like when you're Indiana Jones running in front of that boulder and you know you've got your team right behind you and they're right on your tail, you don't have any time to step back and think about what we're building and, and be sure that we're building the right thing. Are we going in the right direction? Because you are just right, your your face is right down that backlog and you're like, I got to get more stuff in here and my team's going to be blocked. And that's pretty much the, the I mean, the truth is that like your team getting blocked isn't the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could happen is you build the wrong thing. Right. Yeah, I think fo- focus on the goals of why you're planning and find a way to understand that. That's where I came up with that list of three. Yeah. Um, and that's, I optimize for the team, presuming we have like a, a team that can execute well, which we always do. Um, if you're, planning and implementing a plan like through say a scrum process just for its own sake to follow the ritual and follow the process and have rigid rules in place then i think you're that's a bad way to get better at planning it's just like practice that right yeah um so really understanding like why you're doing it and most of the time like the goal should be like shipping a product and then backing out to supporting the team that's going to ship that product really understanding what they need and make sure they feel aligned with that goal and that your plan is supporting them doing that and not telling them how they're going to do that. Well, excellent. Thanks, uh, Jonah and Micah. That's been a fascinating conversation and uh, I know I've learned a lot. So thank you for taking the time to talk. Thank you. Our pleasure.